Mmm, audio parfait. about with that book is to find out how fucking filthy St. Louis used to be. St. Louis is still filthy. Well, no, but there's a lot of nice places in St. Louis, but like back then, like the River de Pere was pretty much just a big sewer and it would fill up with shit and then it would flood onto the streets. And now if you want to see shit in St. Louis, you gotta go like Dogtown after St. Patrick's Day. Ew. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> yeah. no. Alright, welcome to fuck, uh, open a fucking book. <laughs> Welcome to fuck. <laughs> this is a shit show to begin with. Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, fuck it, I'm leaving it in. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. How is everybody doing today? Um, you all, you ready for a big, long, meaty, veiny series? Because that's what we got coming. <laughs> Just a big old sausage of a series. Just going to leave it dangling on out there for everybody to see. I'm going to smack it around a little bit. Yeah, that's right. I don't think I'll need my glasses for this one. Um, so, okay. So, when we came up with the idea for this show, uh, I had no idea who this man was. I had heard his name before. Uh, his writing was never on my radar. It's never something I personally would have read. Um, but I started reading up on his life. And... Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, this man's life is the reason this show was created, and I didn't even realize it. To tell stories like this. It has suicide, murder, underground uh, crime scene, drugs, drug smuggling, world travel, the occult, spirits, ton of sex. We'll discuss it when you get to it. Oh, it's going to be soon. Um, child abuse, inventions, writings, paintings, celebrities, a gaggle of interesting or uh, crazy characters, and at the end, cats. I love cats. The animal, not the musical. The animal. Well, I love both, but still. Um, this man wrote 14 books or novels, some of them in trilogy, trilogy form, multitude of short stories, letters, including novellas, collections, and collaborations. Uh, this is one of the first ones that we're talking. I mean, Howard did some collaborations with like fan fiction type shit, but he was uh, our author today and for the next five weeks um, collaborates with multiple people on multiple projects, not just uh, writing. He gets around. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he helped write an opera, uh, films, a few that he even starred in, uh, put out a handful of albums, mostly spoken word. He was a huge influence influence on some of the most influential artists of the late 20th and early 21st century. And he did it all while, while fighting what he called the ugly spirit. <laughs> that, yeah? I, I have no words. <laughs> the fuck? Uh, he believed in ghosts. Scientology for a, for a time. Idiot. Uh, he, well, he got out. Aliens and magic. He was the reluctant king of the beat generation 
and came to be known as the godfather of punk. He wrote Junkie, Queer, The Naked Lunch, The Wild Boys, and used to paint with spray paint cans, a piece of plywood, and a shotgun. Ladies and gentlemen, to quote one of the greatest artists of this or any generation from one of the highest grossing pieces of cinema to ever be created, hold on to your butts. I give you the life of William S. Burroughs Jr. He's a junior. Yeah, well, he's a junior in the sense that he's the second one to be named William S. Burroughs. His no. father is not William S. His father was not a William Burroughs. His grandfather was William Burroughs. Oh. So, um, now the sources that we're getting from this is just one source. It is the book by Barry Miles called Call Me Burroughs, A Life. And it is a fucking trip. Uh, Barry Miles knew William S. Burroughs. Uh, they worked together on some things. He was the owner of a bookstore, and they got to know each other very well, and he started writing about his life. Um, not the only person to ever write about William S. Burroughs. There are a multitude of uh, Burroughs biography books out there, and any one of them you could pick up and get an idea. But this one seemed to me to be the most comprehensive because it, it also covers his writings, not just all the all the drugs that he took which is a lot. I read more fucking drug names in the past however many weeks I've been doing research on on him than I think I've ever said in my life. Half of which won't even make it into the show. So um, we'll go over his bibliography real quick because the names of the books and the stories are kind of thrown in there willy-nilly as we come across somebody who inspired him. Because... All of his writings are inspired by the people and places around him. He wasn't real big on coming up with, some, with stuff just on his own. He always used the people and the places in his life to put it to his stories. So we have Junkie, Queer, the Yahe Letters, which is Y-A-G-E, but it's Yahe. Hmm. Uh, the Naked Lunch, The Soft Machine, The Ticket That Exploded, Nova Express, Dead Fingers Talk, The Last Words of Dutch Schultz, Wild Boys, Port of Saints, Cities of the Red Knight, Place of the Dead Roads, The Western Lands, The Job, Inner Zone, The Exterminator, Ah, Pook is here, Minutes to Go, The Third Mind, The Cat Inside, and My Education. Uh, there will be more, but those will be the ones that really get focused on. And yes, we will focus on all of those at some point. I think The Wild Boys is the only one I've heard of. If it's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, I don't know if it's the one you're thinking of or not. Is it a post-apocalyptic world where it's most of the women are gone and it's pretty much just a male-run government of feral boys constantly having sex with one another? I don't remember. <laughs> it's something I read in, like, uh, junior high or high school. Okay. And I... Don't really remember it because it was so long ago, but the, I think they made a movie about it. Uh, I, I don't know if they'd have you read The Wild Boys in junior high or high school. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's not really um, a teenager-friendly type book. Oh, anyway, while you think about that. Uh, so, let's get into it. He's got a wild life. It's going to be a long ride. The longest we've done so far is Mark Twain, which was three episodes. And I had to struggle to get this thing down to five big episodes. You 
Stephanie, you saw the struggle I went through to get this thing cut Yeah, down. I had to go many nights without <laughs> having conversations with you or trying to have conversations with you and you getting angry with me. Well, because, I, okay, it's so like Twain, I'd pull up and it was like 50 some odd pages of stuff to go over. And with Howard, it was in the 30s. And with Lee, it was in the high 20s. And then I pull up Burroughs to find out how many pages I have. And it's 252. So I had to whittle that down a little bit. <laughs> and it was a struggle to decide what to keep out. Because there's a lot of stories that I'm not going to tell about a lot of pieces, people you're not going to hear about that I wanted to be in the shows, but we just don't have time for it. So maybe we'll do an extra show for like a Patreon thing when we get our Patreon going. That if you want to hear that, they could pull up and, and listen to that. Okay. Um, Laura and Mortimer Burroughs, he will be known as Moat. 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 He went by Moat. Moat. Uh, lived on Berlin Avenue in the west end of St. Louis, built by Mortimer in 1912 to his own design. Mortimer, his brother, named after his father, will be known as Mort, not Moat Jr., Mort, uh, born February 16th, 1911. Moat loved to garden. Laura loved flower arranging and would go to write three books on the subject for the Coca-Cola company. So, and you'll find out those people in uh, her ancestry that also wrote books. So it's kind of kind of runs in the family. Mm-hmm. William Seward Burroughs was delivered by midwife in the house on Berlin Street, Thursday, February 5th, 1914, named after his gr- grandfather, the inventor of the adding machine. You know, it was chick, 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 and then you pull the thing down, and you know, he invented that. That's awesome. Uh, Laura Hammond Lee Burroughs, 26, Mortimer Perry Burroughs, 29. Bill grew up surrounded by his extended family. he They always had family in their house. So, let's get to know him. The first William Burroughs was the son of Edmund Burroughs and Ellen Wimple, born in New York in 1857. Edmund was somewhat, uh, somewhat of an inventor himself. Pat, he uh, got patenting for the railroad jack and the paper guillotine that we all used in art school or art oh. class. Yeah. Uh, so, William followed suit, contemplating the invention of his adding machine to do his work for him while he was at work at a bank, so it was more of laziness than out of necessity, uh, married Ida Solver in July 1879. Edmund was in St. Louis by 1880. William and Ada either moved with him or followed shortly after in 1886. He developed the prototype for his adding machine and then founded the American Arithmometer Company, and with three other men to manufacture and sell the machine. It was their only product, and it cost $475, which is just under $13,700 today. That's a lot of money for an adding machine. Yeah, figuring today you could get about 13 really nice computers for that much. Yeah. Uh, and here's the shit. Um, William was the only one that could actually work it. <laughs> so uh, they had to all be recalled so they could fix the problem. Then he got the patent out in 1888. So there was a long time where they weren't really able to do anything with them because William was the only one who understood how they worked. Oh, my God. Uh, Jenny Horace, 
who we will learn about a little bit later. Mortimer and Helen were their four children. Ada died in 1896. William buried her in St. Louis and married their children's nurse, Nina, a month later. He would die two years later of tuberculosis in, 19, in 1898, only 41 years old. Nina was now the children's guardian and executor to the estate. She would marry Clarence White in 1900, and they raised Helen as their own child. In 1904, the company was moved to Detroit, renamed the Burroughs Adding Machine Company, and grew to become the largest adding machine company in the U.S. When William died, each child got a block of shares in the company. William Burroughs, the author, the, the, the junior, not the senior, always felt like the company swindled the kids out of substantial money by buying back the shares at below market price. However, they each sold for $100,000, which would be about $3 million now. So not bad. Not what they could have got, but not bad. Yeah, I mean, you just became a fucking millionaire. Yeah, for really doing nothing. Your father gave you some stocks in uh, some shares in, in his company. You sold them and you made three fucking million dollars off of it. I wouldn't complain, but... Yeah. But Moat held back some of his shares, which was a great idea, as the company would increase in value. Bill's favorite of all his uncles was Horace, who I had mentioned just a little bit ago, even though he'd never met him. Horace was a drug addict <laughs> and the black sheep of the family. While Moat used his inheritance to go to MIT, Horace used his to live an extravagant lifestyle, gallivanting around St. Louis in a cape, Drinking and leading a dissolute life, he married, divorced, moved to L.A., where he made and lost several fortunes. He had a shotgun injury to his arm while hunting and took morphine for the pain. Morphine plays a gigantic role in the life of William S. Perros. When we say the word junk, we are talking about morphine. Hmm. Yeah. I know somebody who OD'd on morphine. Yeah, it, it, it happens. Um, it was legal to be purchased over the counter back then. So uh, he became addicted pretty quickly. Uh, Horace moved to Detroit, lost all of his teeth. Bill's, uh, Bill's mom would refer to him as just a derelict. Uh, the Harrison Narcotics Act, Tax Act of 1914 would deprive morphine addicts of their drug supply. On March 7th, after days of withdrawal, he rented a room and told the landlord that he needed a, quote, long sleep. Do you see where this is going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he closed the door and braced it with a chair. He smashed the oil lamp, sliced his wrist and elbow of his left arm. Later that morning, the landlord was told of terrible groaning coming from the room. Horace was still alive when the police broke down the door, but died that afternoon. Parents, re Bill's parents refused to talk about Horace, so he would become the legendary forbidden figure that would contribute to Bill's anti-anti-drug legislation views. Uh, probably the worst thing you can do is not talk about the problem. Yeah. And that's that's a big thing in, in the Burroughs household is not talking about things. No yelling, no raising of voices. Laura's parents came from a religious background. Her father, James Weidman, Weidman Lee, born 1849 to parents that were only 18, got into church at 16 as a preacher. Moved to St. Louis and built 
St. John's Cathedral at age 44, that big, beautiful cathedral that we always see in St. Louis that they're always picturing. Yes. He built that. Awesome. Uh, he married Eufala Ledbetter. I love the old names. They're so easy to fucking say. <laughs> Eufala Ledbetter when she was 13 and he was 26. She was the daughter and granddaughter of preachers, so it fit. Uh, she had her first child at the age of 15. That's statutory. Yeah. Uh, of her 12 children, only six survived. Fucking yeah. hell. Yeah. Uh, survived past infancy. Only six of them. Well, I figure because... That's 50%. I mean... At 15, I mean, you're, back then your body's not... Made to no, it's not. have babies. Alice Darley May, Ivy Ledbetter, Kate Carter, James Wiseman, Laura Hammond, and Lewis Hughes Lee. All required to have yearly reunions and attend Sunday school. Laura herself was born in Atlanta in 1888. Lee wrote more than a dozen books himself, her father. Um, Bill was only five when he died. After that, him and his brother were... No longer forced to go to church. Uh, Bill, I was going to say him a lot. Bill and uh, Mort, Mortimer Jr., were no longer forced to go to church after the grandfather died. Um, Moat and Laura were not religious, even though they were brought up in a certain household. But Moat did once spank Bill for fighting on a Sunday. <laughs> I mean, that's really, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Moat met Laura on one of his visits back to St. Louis to see her family. They were married by her father at the Holy Tr Trinity Methodist Church in Atlanta in November 1908. Moat started the Burroughs Glass Company in 1928, making Laura the VP. Kind of unheard of back then for a woman to have such a high status in a company. But okay, they, so they, they, kind sh of... they shared and they saw everybody, each other all the day, and they, they shared all this stuff. Yeah, so he kind of believed that women should have kind of equal rights to, back then? To a point, yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, during the Great War, World War One, Moat was uh, enrolled in the artillery at Jefferson Barracks, not too far away from where we are. Uh, then, uh, right when the war ended, so he didn't actually see any uh, fighting time. But he would tell the boys stories of how during roll call, soldiers would keel over dead from the Spanish flu pandemic, which we are in now a pandemic. Not the Spanish flu, but... Hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. Is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. So go to audioparfait.com. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1929, Moat sold his shares just three months before the great stock market crash. So good fucking timing. He made just under $300,000 for it, or just under $4 million today. So he had what he had sold before in his old stocks, and now he's selling all this, gets another four million, almost four million on top of it. He continued to operate the glass company until 1932, when he then sold the company and held on to a block of shares in it. 
The financial situation was set for years to come, but retirement didn't suit them, so they took up gardening and landscaping, and they opened a garden shop and gift shop called Cobblestone Gardens in Clayton. It was through this business that they would encounter the homosexual world. This would help them deal with their son's deviation from society's norm. Because as you will come to find out, William S. Burroughs Jr. is gay. Uh, Bisexual. He is gay. Uh, He will have struggles later on in episode four and five. He will have real struggles uh, about his sexuality. But he has a wife. Uh, he has a common law. Well, we'll get to those and the, the wives. Oh, you're talking about his parents right now. I thought you were talking about him and his wife. No, 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 no. We're talking about, no, Bill Jr. William S. Burroughs, the author, is gay. Moat is not gay. Okay, Moat is his dad. Moat is his dad. Mort is his brother. We have Mortimer and Mortimer Jr. But Mortimer went by Moat. Mortimer Jr. went by Mort. And then William S. Burroughs, the inventor, and then William S. Burroughs Jr., the writer. Okay. We got it now? Yeah. Just wait till we get to all the Allens that are in this show. There's like seven different versions of the word Allen to come up. Then you'll start to really get confused. Okay. Um, but no, moat, perfectly straight, but getting into the landscaping and gardening world exposed them to the world of homosexuality. And it real it helped them deal with the shock of what their son will be, which isn't a really a shock now. But back in the early 1900s, being gay was pretty taboo. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if it even I don't think he even wrote it down. But uh, his grandmother, it's so taboo then. Bill's grandmother didn't even know what being gay was. She had never heard the word. Well, I mean, she had heard gay like happy, but as far as yeah. homosexual, she didn't know what that was. I don't even think the term gay was used back then. No. Uh, I mean, it was meant as gay. I think, I think they used the word sissy back then for stuff like that. But no, gay was meaning happy. Yeah. Joyous time. But no, they didn't know what hom- she didn't know what a homosexual was. That that was completely off her radar. That's how taboo this was in you know the Midwest in the early 1900s. Like I said before, Bill grew up grew up surrounded by family. Grandmother, two aunts, two uncles, five cousins. Every Sunday, they'd go to lunch with their grandma. Uh, There were frequent family reunions, like all the fucking time. And she would lecture them on leading a spiritual life. No alcohol allowed in their house, but his uncle Robert and cousin Fred would still bring in their hip flasks. Quote, Grandma always said she'd rather see a son of hers come home dead than drunk. Uh, Bill described his father as reticent, remote, rather difficult to talk to. He was not a ladies' man, and Bill had thought Laura was probably the only woman ever in his life. Moat rarely drank. Uh, He had a duck club, and he would take his two sons shooting, starting when Bill was eight. Quote, I used to go out duck shooting with the old man and the president of the First National City Bank and the editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Have to get up real early, six o'clock, catch the ducks. All in hiding in this marsh, marshy round, and we would put out decoys, and the ducks would come, and all these fat old businessmen would stand up and blast away at them. We had retriever dogs to collect the ducks. I used to really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
demented. Uh, mm, you just just wait. Uh, Moat also loved fishing, which Bill was included in, and tinkering in his workshop, which Bill was not included in. Uh, Moat actually makes a pirate chest for the boys that will appear later in the Cities of the Red Knight that uh, Bill would write. Oh. Yeah. Trust most of the stuff that you hear will eventually end up in one of his books. That I mean, that's pretty much all he does is just take shit from his life and put it in his books in a fantastical way, usually. Bill's mother was clearly a profound influence on his life. Bill was his mother's favorite. She adored him. He could do no wrong. He was a mama's boy. Uh, when she was interviewed by psychiatrists at the Payne Whitney Institute in New York in 1940, noted that she was, quote, intelligent but emotional, inclined to be unable to see shortcomings in patient and to stress what she regarded as his successes. When Bill was an adult, she would tell him, quote, I worship the ground you walk on. Would you ever say that to one of your kids? No. No. They'd get a big head. Yeah. His parents never fought or even raised their voices. Quote, nothing like that. It's amazing when you come to think of it. They saw each other all the time. All the time. Really emphasize the fact that they never got away from one another. Bill was a sensitive child and prone to, putting the air quotes up, visions. Um, much of the connection with his mother came from the common belief in magic and the world of the occult. He had intermittent fevers and saw animals in the walls, as he liked to say, of his bedroom. Quote, I've always been a believer in spirits. The supernatural, like my mother, was a weird family. <laughs> uh, when he was four years old, he and Mort were playing in Forest Park. Mort had a BB gun and had gone ahead when Bill saw a delicate little green reindeer about the size of a cat standing in a grove of trees, quote, clear and precise in the late afternoon sunlight as if seen through a telescope. Bill called to Mort to come look back and look, but Mort refused. Mort said Bill talked too much. Bill talked all the time. So Mort probably just learned to ignore him. Bill said, quote, I was subject to those sorts of things to visions, hallucinations, whatever you want to call them. One morning, age four, he woke up early and he was in Mort's bedroom where he had built a little house of building blocks on the floor. Quote, I see little gray men playing in my block house. They move very fast, like a 1920s speed-up film. Whoosh, they're gone. Just the empty block house and gray dawn light. I'm motionless in the sequence. A silent witness. It sounds to me like he just had a very vivid imagination and he's probably seeing shit because he i think we're all going to come to find out that he's schizophrenic yeah i was just about to say maybe he's schizophrenic or he had he's dementia at an early age <laughs> uh from an early age burroughs was con was in contact with the magical medium laura was extremely interested in psychic phenomena and so it didn't help that his mother kind of urged it along um, Burroughs often spoke of her having clairvoyant powers. Billy had a dream accompanied with the smell of coal gas, which is pretty common in 1920s St. Louis to smell coal gas because all the factories ran on it, uh, that he was standing, and this is important, so remember this dream, that he was standing in front of his mother, leaning over her like a dinosaur 
eating her back. The look. The oh, look. gross. <laughs> Quote, now mother comes screaming into the room. I had a terrible dream that you were eating my back. I have a long neck that reaches up and over her head. My face in the dream is wooden with horror. This dream reoccurred throughout his life and was described in a number of his books. He and Laura seemed to be psychically connected. His childhood memories were almost all of his mother. Because you'll come to find out that a lot of his memories get repressed for certain reasons. Bill was also exposed to superstitious talk and ideas of the servants in their house. Little Billy listened, fascinated to these old tales. But it was Billy's Welsh nanny, Mary Evans, who remained upmost in his memory because of the traumatic incident that occurred when Burroughs was just four years old. Again, he's four years old. All this stuff's happened where he's fucking four years old. Little Billy was very close to his nanny, so, so much that when she had her Thursdays off, he would throw hysterical tantrums screaming, All I want is nursy! Mary Evans imparted her native folklore to the boys, old Welsh rhymes like, Slip and stumble, trip and fall, down the stairs and hit the wall. Uh, it stayed in his memory, and his protagonist, Kim, uses it in the place of the dead roads. Nursey was nevertheless responsible for a major trauma that occurred when Burroughs was four years old, something so extreme and shocking that despite 10 years of psychoanalysis, he was never able to properly retrieve it. Different analysts proposed various explanations, and Burroughs himself eventually identified some elements of the event. So here it goes. Again, hold on to your butts. <clears throat> One Thursday, the late summer or autumn of 1918, possibly because of Little Bill's hysterical tantrums, Mary Evans took him along with her on her day off. Mary Evans had a girlfriend whose boyfriend was a veterinarian who worked from his home in the outskirts of St. Louis. The general consensus among his analysts was that Mary had encouraged Billy to fillet the, the vet and that, scared, Billy had bitten the man's penis, causing him to smack Billy on the head. You all right over there? Yeah. <laughs> Bill also theorized that he had witnessed Mary and her girlfriend having sex, giving rise to an infantile idea that women had penises. Whatever happened, it disturbed Bill greatly, and he told his brother. Bill later remembered Mort saying, Should we tell on Nursey? But they didn't. Afterwards, Billy had dreams in which Mary Evans threatened him if he should ever tell what happened. He told another psychiatrist that he wished Nursey and his girlfriend dead and felt deeply guilty for feeling this. Mary Evans returned to Britain abruptly in 1919 after receiving a letter from England which suggests a death in the family. This is very, there is very little cocksucking in Burroughs' sex writing. Probably why. But there still is, so. There's very little, there's more cocksucking in his life than there is in his writing. He, uh, there's a lot of gay sex in his writing, but it's more like a, like, full-on sex than it is just, you know, going down on one another. In 1919, at age five, Billy was sent to the community school. Uh, Bill was slow to begin reading, then suddenly came, came easy. He was taught to write short stories and produce several westerns and spooky things that he read in class. Again, this is at age five and six that he starts reading and, and writing stories and giving them to his class to be read aloud. 
At an early age, Burroughs began to take refuge in fiction and see himself as a fictional character. At the community school, he read a pirate book and wanted to become the coldest and nastiest of the pirates. He was that one kid in your group that always wanted to be the villain. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, mm, it it well, may become a problem. Uh, Billy was useless at addition and division and never learned to spell properly. His eccentric spellings often remained in his books because the editors thought he intended them that way. So if you're reading a William S. Burroughs book and you come across a misspelled word, it's not misspelled on purpose. He couldn't spell very well, and the people who were typing it out for him didn't fix it, and neither did the editors. <laughs> Fun fact, also in attendance at the community school, Vincent Price. Ooh. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, Bill wrote his first book at the community school when he was eight years old. And it was about 10 pages long. It was called The Autobiography of a Wolf. He didn't know the difference between autobiography and biography. So he called it The Autobiography of a Wolf. Uh, Bill was also Bill also wrote ghost stories, westerns, gangster stories. He already knew he wanted to be a writer. Bill's best friend and his first cousin, cousin Prin Hoxie. Again, fucking names back then. Uh, his Aunt Alice's boy lived nearby in Hirsch, on Hirschman Avenue and went to community school. Prin was the same age and his constant companion. I don't have a lot on Prin, but remember his name for later. I thought it was a girl's name. No, it is not. Prin is a boy. I just said Aunt Alice's boy. I, yeah, he yeah. did. In 1919, Bill's father bought 40 acres of land on the south side of Missouri River, two miles south of the small hamlet of St. Albans. He, bought, he built a holiday cabin there for his family. It is St. Albans that Burroughs is remembering in the western lands and large sections of the Place of Dead Roads. And the book features a map of the town based on Burroughs' childhood memory of the place. For their annual vacation, the Burroughs family had a comfortable summer house in Harbor Beach, Michigan, on the western shore of Lake Huron, due north of Detroit. Harbor Beach is remembered with affection in the From the Lake, From the Hill section of Port of Saints. It was here at age five where Bill, Bill learned how to chew glass. Oh. Yeah, they were on like a ferry going across the, the lake, and he grabbed a, a water glass and just broke a piece off his mouth and started chewing it up. Freaked everybody out. Everybody was fucking going crazy because they thought he was going to cut the inside of his mouth. Bill, I, I would have been freaked out. Oh, yeah. I'd have been scared shitless. Uh, Bill spent the part of uh, summer, 1924, when he was 10, at a dude ranch in New Mexico with his brother. Bill first went to Los Alamos Ranch School when he was 11. We'll get back to that in a moment. Now, the air pollution in St. Louis precipitated a flight to the suburbs by anyone who could afford it. It was horrible in downtown St. Louis. From all the factories burning coal and everything. It was... On December 23rd, 1926, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch headline cracked, presumably, presumably, the sun rose. But whether it did, nobody knows. That year, Mortimer Burroughs bought five acres of land at 700 South Price Road. The new house at 700 South Price Road was large. He was able to get a bunch of animals running around in his house. He had a little baby goat. He used to put his fist up and the goat would headbutt, headbutt his fist. He had a bunch of fucking animals when he was a kid. Baby goat called kid. Mm-hmm. Most of the children from the community school continued either to the Boys Only Country Day or to the co-educational John Burroughs School, named after the Greek naturalist. No relation. It was at the community school that Bill met Richard Kammerer, 
and his older brother David, but he didn't really get to know them until they were at John's Burroughs school. Richard was the same age as Burroughs, but Bill found him rather rather surly. He got on better with David, who was born in 1911 and was three years older. But the real friendship began later when they admitted to each other that they were both gay. Although Burroughs said that he knew he was homosexual by the time he was 13, his early crushes and experiments were fraught with anxiety and difficulty. It was at John Burroughs school that Burroughs met his lifelong friend and the first love of his life, albeit unconsummated, Kells Elvins. Quote, I just fell in love with him and everyone around school was like, well, you're his slave. Kells was entirely heterosexual, but was prepared to tolerate Bill's signs of affection, such as walking to school with his arm draped over his shoulder. Paulet Evans, Elvins, Kells' father, who was an attorney, was clearly suffering from Tourette syndrome. Bill and Kells were greatly amused by Paulet's verbal incontinence, his rudeness, his outrageous remarks. He was all he was manic all the time, yelling and screaming. In Burroughs' words, he was quote a very crooked, nasty lawyer and an anti-Semite. He said, you know what I like about this place? The view. The view was of a Jewish cemetery. He says, I like to see it fill up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That look you're giving me with your arms crossed. That's fucked up. It is fucked up. People in the area didn't like Bill. The way he acted, the way he looked. Kel's mother said he looked like, quote, a sheep-killing dog. And the wife of a doctor told Dave, David Kammerer, quote, Well, listen, if you want to get ahead socially, get rid of him. He's a walking corpse. When hearing of her death, Bill was quoted saying, It isn't every, cor- it isn't every corpse that can walk. Hers can't, old bitch. <laughs> well, I mean, tip for tat. Yeah. Uh, a whole beguiling new world was opened up to Burroughs when he read, You Can't Win by Jack Black. Not that Jack Black, a different Jack Black. The autobiography of a former burglar, drug addict, and railroad hob- hobo published in 1926. He had not known that such a life existed and was immediately intrigued. Quote, It fascinated me. I thought it would be great to be a burglar. He longed for, the, for this other world of cheap hotels, smoky bars, pool halls, whorehouses, and opium dens, of cat burglars and hobo jungles. He wanted to be one of the good bums and thieves with a code of honorable conduct. He became fascinated by gangsters and romanticized them. Bill continued to write stories, mostly lurid adventure tales of daring do, goth horror, and westerns that were read aloud in class. Sometimes he wrote more philosophical essays, such as his first published work, Personal Magnetism, which appeared in the February 1929 issue of the John Burroughs Review, about sending $2 for instructions on how to control others at a glance. His interest in control systems appeared early on, and that's a big thing, is how how to control people and how to not be controlled by people is a huge thing that will carry on for the rest of his life. Especially probably episode three or four, what he really starts thinking that the the, the world is being ran by giant insects from outer space. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> uh, in 1927, a St. Louis tornado made a b- big impression on him. On sep- September 29th, one of the most destructive tornadoes in St. Louis history made its way through the city. It tore up part of the school and many downtown stores and homes. Bill loved it. Tornadoes appear throughout Burroughs' work, later work, usually 
with a touch of sexual excitement. That year, Bill attended summer camp at Los Alamos with Mort, and they made a family trip to France. Bill enjoyed himself immensely. It was his first trip abroad and is what probably began his love with travel. He would spend about five decades of his life traveling in and out of the U.S., South America, Central America, and Europe. He lives abroad for most of his life. He, he ends up hating the U.S. completely. I can't blame him. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, not for the reasons that most people would hate the U.S. He hates it for selfish reasons. Taxes and, and food and shit like that. Stupid stuff. Bill and all of his friends had a chemistry set. Well, they all had their own chemistry sets. Mm-hmm. Quote, I remember how I used to while away the long 1920s afternoons with sugar sprinkled around little heaps of ammonia iodide, waiting for the flies to explode into little puffs of purple vapor. Bill and his friends all made black powder, which they would put in boxes and throw, causing loud explosions. When he was 14, he was at work in the basement and had carefully packed a mixture of potassium chlorate and red phosphorus into a box. He was putting the top on, when friction caused the chemicals to explode, shredding his left hand. His father, who was working with his tools in the next room, rushed in, quickly wrapped his hand in cloth, and drove him straight to the nearest hospital emergency room in University City. He was operated on by Dr. Masters, who spent two hours carefully removing the wooden splinters from his damaged hand. And anybody ever get a splinter removed, it's not fun. Imagine your entire left hand covered in them for two hours. The injury was so serious that Bill remained in the hospital for six weeks with his bandit with his hands bandaged. Bill's father came to see him every day. It was a bad injury, and Bill was exempt from gym and athletics for the year. Dr. Masters told Bill's parents that he had given him a nearly adult dose of morphine, something that stuck in Bill's mind and may come into play in his addictions later in life. The explosion and the hospitalization transformed Bill from being a very talkative boy into a very reserved one. This change suggests that six weeks of enforced idleness and boredom brought about a sudden self-awareness. He was alone with his thoughts, He experienced his experience of the green reindeer, and his visions. He became afraid of the dark, kept a pair of brass knuckle dusters beneath his pillow at night. He always had sinus trouble, and when he had When he had a fever, often saw animals in the walls. Laura thought nothing of this because she also had fever visions. In Burroughs' Burroughs own cosmology, the damage to his hand would have provided an entry port for the ugly spirit. (laughs) You you laugh because it's funny, uh, but this ugly spirit... I mean, you could say what you want about spirituality and magic and 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 and, and I be- possessions. I believe in and all magic. This. I believe in demons, but, and I believe in that. Sh- but th- it's just so. Well, no. Here's the thing with the ugly spirit. He gets to use this as a scapegoat. Anytime he does something wrong, anytime he fucks up, the ugly spirit. Oh, it was the ugly spirit made me do. It. Yeah. It it just sounds so far fetched. The way, like it. You can tell he has a mental disease, and he knows it. Yeah. A lot. I think more people will know it as we go on. Yeah. It's just fucking (laughs) mind-fucking me right now. Bill and Mort had attended the Los Los Alamos Ranch School summer camp for three years running. 
1925, 1926, 1927. So the school, the school pitched to them to attend full time. The director, Albert James Connell, spent much of his vacations traveling the country, meeting with parents, hoping to persuade them to the benefits of sending their boys to his rugged outdoor life school, which also happened to be the most expensive school in the United States. $2,400 a year then. Today, 35000 And that was per kid? Per kid. After three summers, Connell knew Bill's parents quite well, which must be how he came to be left in the house alone with Bill when he was in St. Louis recruiting. Burroughs remembered an extraordinary story, which we must assume is true. Quote, I was left in the rather dubious company of Mr. Connell. He says, I like to see this gibbon stripped. In my own house. Nobody was there. I obediently went to my room and took off my clothes. God, it's enough to make you want to puke when you think back on it. He wanted me to get a heart on, so I did. He then says, do you play with it, Gibbon? Do you play with it till it goes off? And all this creepy talk, oh my God. He made no effort to touch my prick or anything like that. Well, have you ever done this with other boys? And I hadn't. But I remember that after he left and everything, that I was thinking that the idea of doing it with other boys would seem to me the most exciting thing. I remember I was coming home, back from school, and I was walking up the hill, and I got a hard-on thinking about it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Bill was enrolled in Los Alamos Ranch School. He was 16. Every month, all these boys were subject to naked physical examinations in the nurse's office by two of the teachers. They were weighed and measured to see how much they had grown and checked to see their muscle tone. Connell took a close personal interest in this and was almost always there to supervise, touching their arms, chest, and their ass, though never anywhere else. His sexual interest in boys was generally recognized by the staff and boys, and many of the masters were concerned by it. In February, not long after his 17th birthday, his mother came to visit him and took Bill and a school friend to Santa Fe for the day's outing. In his avid study of gangster books, Bill had come across knockout drops, chloral hydrate, and managed to slip undetected into a drugstore to buy some. A few days later, he took almost a lethal dose and finished up in the school infirmary. His explanation was simply that he wanted to see how it worked. It was his first investigation of mind-altering drugs, albeit a very crude one. Twice a week, Connell made trips to Santa Fe, and specially chosen would accompany, accompany him, usually the older children of the richest parents who could act as drivers. It was on one of these three trips that he created Tio Mate from the Wild Boys. Other characters were developed. There was a vicious old tycoon who kept pretending to die and listened to what people said about him, then leaping out of bed and cutting people out of his will. <laughs> nice. the, the old tycoon later became Mr. Hart and Ah, Pooch is here. Bill had a crush on one of the other boys, William Russell Fawcett. Quote, You align yourself with people to you feel attracted to in some way or another. He was nice looking. He had pimples. I find pimples quite attractive. We did actually jack off together under the sheets with flashlights on. Then he said that he thought that this was all wrong. He said, I think you're going to be the sort of person that will be revolted by a naked woman. He finally got to hating me completely. You see, with boys like Kells and Russell Fawcett, when I was attracted to them, 
I became extremely subservient and actually made myself an object of contempt to the boys for being so much more interested in him than he was in me. Abject. It was horrid. It was horrible. I don't blame him. You're giving me a look. Which is... Wow. Uh, he, he was more attracted to people who didn't want him than to people who did want him. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, it was Fawcett who was the cause of Burroughs leaving the school. Bill had known he was homosexual since he was 13, but didn't know how to do anything about it. It, uh, Seemed attracted. He seemed attracted to heterosexual boys. Burroughs wrote that he, quote, formed a romantic attachment to one of the boys at Los Alamos and kept a diary of this affair that was to put me off writing for many years. Even now, I blush to remember its contents. Home for the Easter vacation in 1931, he convinced his family that his feet were giving him pain. He managed to persuade his parents to let him stay home. He then told his mother that he felt miserable because he had a fixation on a boy at a school, at, at the school, and the boy had become very hostile. He left two months early after staying on long enough to appear in a dramatic production he had rehearsed. Laura was very understanding about it, but her homosexual but to her, homosexuality was a terrible, frightening illness. She said, quote, We'll send you to a doctor who will fix this up. We'll spend every penny if necessary. Yeah, because you can you well, can fix it. But and they, they thought at that time that it was an illness, not just, you know, who you were. Uh and this will come this whole thing will come into play. Uh, later on in life, about him not wanting people to know he was gay until he was ready for them to find out. Yeah, this first delve into shame for his sexual preference began the development of his persona as El Hombre Invisible and was all to do with his fear of exposure and his horror of being the object of contempt and ridicule. The school packed his things, including the incriminating diary, and sent them to him, quote, I used to turn cold thinking that maybe the boys were reading it aloud to each other. When the box finally arrived, I pried it open and threw everything out until I found the diary and destroyed it forthwith without a glance at the appalling pages. The act of writing had become embarrassing, disgusting, and above all, false. It was not the sex in the diary that embarrassed me. It was the terrible falsality of the the emotions expressed. The sight of my words on a page sickened me, and this continued until 1938. I had written myself an eight-year sentence. Bill's two years at Los Alamos made a huge impression on him, featuring in many of his utopian fantasies about all-male societies, particularly in The Wild Boys. The school came to an abrupt end, however. One spring morning in 1942, a small reconnaissance aircraft circled around and around and around the ranch. Connell knew something was up. The Only the military could afford to use that much aircraft full in wartime. When they received two visitors, Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer and General Leslie Groves, carrying a set of plans. The school was requisitioned, sentries were posted all around, and a team of scientists moved in. It was at Los Alamos that the atomic bomb was invented. Mm-hmm. In the fall of 1931, Burroughs started at the Taylor School. Bill got good grades and off and on the college board and graduated in the spring of 1932 and was able to go to Harvard. Which, you know, hmm. quote, I remembered a prohibition era round roadhouse of my adolescence and the taste of gin rickies in a Midwest summer. Oh, my God, in the August moon in a violent sky and Billy Bradshickle's cock. How sloppy can you get? P.S. Billy Bradshickle got to be such a nuisance. I finally had to kill him. 
Did he really kill him? No. It's from a story. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> there is persuasive proof that Billy Bradshinkle was in reality Prin Hoxie. Oh. His first cousin. Oh, neighbor yeah. Neighbor and best friend at John Burroughs School. The dates fit to the writing that he had. He's got a whole long passage. I didn't bother with it because it would take too much so time. So he'd get drunk and suck <clears throat> on his cousin's dick. Uh, they would go out together. And uh, it'd be mo- mostly like mutual masturbation and stuff like that. Um, but they'd spend all night doing it in the back of Billy's, well, Prin's um, old Model T until they, Prin had to end it. And Bill was completely devastated by it. I mean, he was, you know, he felt like he was in love. And then a little bit a while later, Prick, um, Prin was uh, killed in a car accident. And it, it fucked him up quite a bit. But yeah, he was doing stuff with his cousin. I told you to remember that name. Ew. So it was the done thing for someone of Burroughs' class and background to go to Harvard, but he had not reckoned with the attitude of the boys from the East Coast prep school who wanted nothing to do with him. He was unable to get into a club. Burroughs delved into witchcraft, tantricism, and read numerous books on the subject. Quote, I was interested in any kind of witchcraft and the occult to learn more about my own visions. If your totem animal is a deer, this will be revealed in a vision of a deer. Now that means, for one thing, you're not allowed to kill the totem animal. Technically, you shouldn't eat the totem animal, but I've eaten venison frequently. But I would never kill a deer. He studied studied astrology, took up yoga, sometimes locking himself in his room for several days. Friends heard him mumbling to himself, and Bill told Bill Gilmore, one of his friends, it was sub-vocal speech, part of his yoga training. He had a French book describing various forms of torture and delighted in shocking people with it and explaining in detail what went on in medieval torture chambers. Sounds like a fun guy. The biggest subject of debate on the campus at the time was communism and the Russian experiment. All the Harvard bookshops were filled with books about it. The idea never appealed to Burroughs at all. In fact, as he put it, quote, I was never tempted by any political program. I don't want to hear about the fucking masses and never did. Burroughs was an English major. He graduated with honors and got an A in every course. Uh, his study was to memorize certain sections, and then after, after reading them just a couple times, he'd memorize entire sections and be able to quote them verbatim. But he couldn't spell words. He couldn't, he couldn't spell, and he, he wasn't very good with addition or subtraction, but he, he could read very well. He could read and... And he picked up on other languages pretty well, too. He hardly went to any lectures, nor was he required to attend class. T.S. Eliot was one of, was the Charles Eliot Norton Professor of Poetry during the 1932-33 um, season and delivered eight lectures under the general title The Use of Poetry and the Use of Criticism. Burroughs attended one of them. Another fun fact, T.S. Eliot, who grew up not far from Burroughs' house in St. Louis, uh, waltzed with Bill's mother at dance class. Aww. Uh-huh. Uh huh. At Harvard, he was reunited with Kells Alvin, and Bill's brother Mort also arrived there after a short stint in Princeton. In 1933, his parents permitted and paid for him to go on his first trip to Europe without them. He was accompanied by his friend David Kammerer. Bill knew that Kammerer was gay, and Bill had probably revealed his own interest to men and to Kammerer. One of their subjects of conversation was Kammerer's obsession with an Apache he met at a bar. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that 
becomes troublesome later. Next episode, I believe. By now, Bill was beginning to take friends at Harvard. Burroughs met Richard Stern of the Stern Investment Bank family, who was at Harvard Business School. Although it was illegal to have a gun in Massachusetts, the Harvard authorities never searched the students' rooms, and Burroughs had him had with him a 32 Smith & Wesson revolver that he had bought at Los, Alam- Los Alamos Ranch. Now, this is a story that goes into play about how reckless he is with certain things, which will uh, eventually come almost ruin his life. Not long after their meeting, Richard Stern and Burroughs were both drunk in Bill's room, and Bill began waving his gun around. He pointed it at Richard's stomach, some three feet away, and pulled the trigger, sure that it was not loaded. Fortunately, Stern was in the fencing club, and as soon as Bill pointed the gun, he turned to the side. The gun went off, blowing a hole in the wall. (laughs) Fucking idiot. There were speakeasies in Boston, and Bill used to sometimes cruise Scully Square, which catered to sailors and gay men. But it was safer for Harvard boys to go to New York to get drunk and to have sex. Bill was 21, but he had never had a real lover. His sexual experience was restricted to mutual masturbation and blowjobs. He wanted a boyfriend, but had no idea how to find one. The final realization that he preferred boys had resulted in a complete paralysis of action and no sex at all. None of his visits to New York had resulted in full sexual relations, although his friend Bill Gilmore claimed that Bill was very promiscuous promiscuous in his first years at Harvard, but much less so in the last two years. He was socially inept, he didn't know how to act, he didn't know the right things to say in order to pick someone up, even at a gay bar in New York. He had, the boy had no game. No, no, he, no, no, he didn't. Not until he gets older, and then his charisma and just who he was was able to get him... Um, boys. Well, I had no game when I was younger, and <laughs> mm-hmm. then once I was like, "Yeah, my personality's fucking awesome." I let my personality. It's not his personality. It's not his personality. <laughs> That's getting him boys. Oh, <laughs> the extent of Bill's sexual ignorance emerged when he was a senior. When in his senior year, quote. Until the age of 22, I thought that children were born through the navel. I did. It was an evening with James LeBaron Boyle, Richard Stern, and Graham Iris Monsell that I expressed this theory, which I thought was fact. And they said, what? Then they enlightened me to the horrible fact, the facts of life. I knew about female genitals. I knew they had a hole down there. But I did not know that the baby was born down there. I had never had one of those man-to-man talks with my father. He would have been shit scared. He was the most prissy heterosexual I'd ever known. What the fuck? Oh my god. <laughs> his final year of college, Bill still had no idea what to do with his life. He made plans for another trip to Europe that summer, this time with Robert Miller. Harvard meant so little to him that he left before commencement. His parents were clearly still concerned about him because they arranged a follow-up meeting with their psychiatrist friend, Dr. Sidney Schwab, to see how he was doing. Although the trip to Vienna began as any other summer vacation, it turned out to have profound repercussions for Burroughs. By the time he had returned to the States, he had studied medicine in Vienna and was a married man. Hey guys, have you been trying to grow out that beard? I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at thebeardstruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. 
And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now. Odin demands it. They arrived in Vienna July 4th. Gay friends had recommended them to the Hotel Kjong von Ungard, King of Hungary. It had become notorious as a place for international queer set to take their boys at any time, day or night. Burroughs liked to tell the story of someone bringing back a queen in, the, in drag to the hotel to be told, I'm sorry, sir, you simply cannot bring a woman into this hotel. The man took off his wig and the doorman quickly apologized, oh, terribly sorry, sir, and welcomed them in. Dubrovnik in Yugoslavia was an important stop-off. Bill and Robert arrived July 29th. It was here where Bill would met Isla Hersveld Clapper, who made a career out of playing hostess to the visiting gay set, mostly English. She was someone who everyone called upon when in Dubrovnik. She saw Bill and Robert every day, showed them the sights, and introduced them around. Isla was born April 19, 1900, 14 years before Burroughs, and came from a very wealthy Jewish family in Hamburg. This is the 1930s. She's Jewish. Can you see where we're going? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isla had married Dr. Klapper, a German uh, physician, and they moved to Dubrovnik, but they were divorced and no longer saw each other. Recent develops in Germany meant she her stipend from her family was cut off and she was forced to give English lessons lessons and take other odd jobs to earn income. She was living in a tiny room in a hotel when she met Burroughs and Miller. Burroughs thought she was ter- terrifically intelligent and they became very good friends. He liked the way no one could put one over on her. She was a survivor. Bill and Robert had been due to return to the States from the Brovnik in September, but Bill had always considered becoming a doctor in order to get... Into American medical school, he needed pre-med qualifications in biology, chemistry, and mathematics, which he was not good at. In Vienna, all he needed was a high school diploma, as the university system in Europe meant anyone could enroll in course and keep taking the examinations until they eventually qualified. Although the dropout rate was considerable. Bill enrolled in the 14th century University of Vienna the, yeah, the 14th Century University of Vienna Medical School for the winter term, October 36 until mid-February 1937. The Nazis were growing increasingly more powerful, and he followed their rise with deep fascination. He found that almost all of the students he talked to at the medical school were either pro-Nazi, anti-Semitic, or Jewish. It seemed obvious that the Nazis were going to take over Austria with massive support, they had, among the population and the police and in Vienna, despite its left-wing traditions, there was growing support for them with swastikas on buildings and marches and demonstrations. Only 18 months later, on March 12, 1938, Austria was annexed to Germany's Third Reich. By the end of the term, in the middle of February 1937, Burroughs could see what the situation in Vienna was, was now so unstable that he would never be able to complete his medical education there. He felt that, quote, I could have never been a doctor. It did, I did right to quit. My heart is too soft and too hard. Too quickly moved to love, anger, and indifference. I would care too much for some patients and nothing for others. So, I mean, it was good that he came to that own realization before he, you know, started working on people and killing them. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. 
When visiting Prague, Burroughs came down with acute appendicitis and quickly returned to Vienna. He had his appendix removed in emergency surgery, and on May 1st, he returned to Dubrovnik to recuperate from the operation. There, he naturally contacted Isla. She was frantic with worry. Her Yugoslavian visa was about to expire, but as a Jew, she could not renew it. She would have to return to Germany. There, the Nuremberg Laws had already excluded German Jews from Reich citizenship, prohibiting them from holding public office and from marrying or having sexual relations with persons of German or German-related blood. She could see what was coming. She asked Bill to marry her. For her, it was a matter of life or death. Whereas for Bill, marriage meant nothing. He knew he was gay and and unlikely ever to want to marry. Bill was 23. She was 38. But they were generally good friends. So as he said, quote, I was doing it to be a nice guy. They quickly found a priest with no scruples who was prepared to take the $10 fee. And on August 7th, 1937, at the American Embassy, they were wed. Three weeks later, Isla had her entry visa and traveled to the United States as a non-quota immigrant. Burroughs had saved her life. Aww. I mean, it's one of the very few nice things you hear of him doing. Look, I, I had told you this the whole time reading. I was like, you are not going to like him. There's some stuff he does the first episode, maybe two episodes, that you're going to be like, oh, he's not too bad. As we go along, you're going to like him less and less. Yeah, you did warn me. <laughs> I'm warning everybody out there, too. You, Unless you already know him and like him, you're probably not going to like I don't like him. But I've spent the past few weeks just nothing but William S. Burroughs, so I'm ready to be done with them. The next five weeks are going to suck. That summer, Burroughs moved back to Harvard to do graduate work in anthropology and Mayan uh, archaeology. He did a summer course and then enrolled in fall term. Kells Elvin was also at Harvard doing graduate work in psychology. Bill and Kells and a snippy queen named Alan Calvert, Alan number one, rented a wooden suburban-framed house on the outskirts of Cambridge. Ever since Los Alamos' diary, Burroughs had disliked the whole process of writing. However, in Cambridge, writing was a frequent subject of discussion, and Kells persuaded Bill that they should write a hard-boiled detective story together. Sitting in the screened-in porch in their house, they acted out the different roles of their characters. It quickly became a Burroughs routine, marrying shocking, shocking stories of cowardly behavior with elements of his recent medical training. This was taken to a grotesque extreme in the story called Twilight's Last Gleaming that Burroughs later used almost verbatim in Nova Express. They described that acting out the parts was the best way to gain understanding of the characters and their physical actions. Quote, that's a very useful exercise that I started when we were writing this story together. Kells was great. He was funny. That was the first appearance of Dr. Benway. Kells, Kells just dredged him up the name and personality. A completely irresponsible doctor that gets into the first lifeboats, the Titanic. You all all right? I'm a doctor. <laughs> you just see an old, an old, an old man getting into the lifeboats on the tar- Titanic. Everybody, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. Everybody okay? Oh, 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 we're going down. Okay. Dr. Benway, who became one of Burroughs' best love characters, was based on a real doctor whom Elvin... Elvins once knew. The writing of Twilight's Last Gleaming cemented Bill and Kell's friendship for life, and Elvins always encouraged and supported Burroughs in his literary endeavors. Kells was a real friend. He was one of the few people that you can look at and go, he he loved Bill for Bill, not just for what Bill could be. Burroughs, oh, long before, there I am, okay. 
Life in their frame house was enjoyable, but in the spring 1939, Kells left to do graduate work in the state prison in Huntsville, Texas, where he had been offered a place as a prison psychologist. The household broke up. Bill was at a loose ends, and after giving Kells time to settle in, went down to visit him in Texas, where he was now living with a woman named Jean. Burroughs took his fall 1939 and spring 1940 anthropology classes at Harvard, but made an abrupt move to New York City before completing the course. On February 1st, he wrote asking Harvard to send his papers to Columbia to enable him to study anthropology and uh, psychology there. Bill connected up with Bill Gilmore again, who introduced him to Jack Anderson a downtown, in a downtown queer bar. He and Bill made, made it sporadically. When I say make it, you know what I'm talking about? They made it. Doing it? Yeah, there you go. Uh, but Jack was hustling. The walls of the apartment they were in were thin, and Bill could hear Jack having sex with pickups. Mm-hmm. He was cheating on him. Uh, he was a whore. Oh. Yep. He was a hustler, as they like to be called. But he was a whore. Um, what really disturbed Bill, however, was Jack had a girlfriend, and Bill could hear them together. Bill was racked with jealousy. He became obsessed with Jack, consistently remonstrating with him, putting himself through hell. One of the few violent episodes of his life occurred when when Jack and his girlfriend were visiting with Burroughs in his room and at Jane Street. Quote, his girlfriend, who was wildly jealous, suddenly hit me and knocked my glasses off, and I just hauled off and hit her one. She kept complaining. I happen to love Jack. I happen to love Jack. Drunk out of her mind. This went on for hours. Then all of a sudden, the bitch hauled off and hit me. Instead of acting like a professor, I just hauled off and whammed her one, knocked her across the room into the couch. Jack did nothing. I hit her real hard. Slammed her in the face. I was amazed to see this happen for my fist. Stronger than I know I am. She got up all sort of subdued. She assumed this was her due. It really stopped the whole scene. So he's not above hitting a woman. Uh, Bill, Bill was becoming irrational. He warned Jack that he didn't, if he didn't give up the woman, he'd cut off a finger. At the same time, he recognized that his obsession with Anderson was neurotic and they, he needed help. Bill looked up the New York Psychoanalysis Institute in the phone book and made a blind appointment, resulting in analysis with Dr. Herbert Wiggers. Bill's parents thought analysis was a good idea and agreed to pay. That's an ongoing theme. They had good reason to think so. Their son was growing more dissociated from reality and unable to function normally. Anderson was his first real lover and had triggered in Burroughs a torrent of suppressed feelings that he was unable to control. He was powerless in his efforts to make Anderson return his love, and his emotions were overwhelming him. A seething mixture of rage, frustration, feeling of portrayal, erotic fantasies, and revenge. On April 23, 1940, Burroughs bought a pair of poultry shears for $2.79 plus tax. He placed the end joint of his little finger between the blades, and his short story, The Finger, he wrote, He took a deep breath, pressed the handle quick and hard. He felt no pain. Tears came to his eyes. It didn't do anything, he said in a broken child's voice. He crudely bandaged his finger, put the finger joint in the waistcoat pocket, and left. He felt a wave of euphoria and stopped at a bar and ordered a double brandy. He had originally intended to present the finger to Anderson in some sort of Van Gogh gesture, but he had a meeting scheduled with Dr. Wiggers. Wiggers was terrified by Bill's self-mutilation. He said, quote, Really, Bill, you're doing yourself a great disservice. When you realize what you've done, you'll need psychiatric care. 
your ego will be overwhelmed. He persuaded Bill to come with him to his office in Bellevue to have the finger dressed to avoid infection. But once he got there, Bill was tricked into signing some papers and found himself in the psychiatric ward. He was interviewed and committed. Bill's father flew immediately. And the next day, Bill was transferred to the private Payne Whitney Clinic. Bill was in Payne Whitney for a month. He spent most of this time in the room playing solitaire or reading. His admission interview was unsatisfactory because Bill did not want his parents to know the event that had triggered the homos- was triggered by a homosexual relationship and told the doctors a story about being jilted by a girl. Bill's mother arrived and Bill told her that he was interesting, interested in the perceptions of pain and had cut off his little finger to be able to prove to himself that if one concentrating on not feeling pain, one could, not, one could cut off a finger and feel nothing. He told Laura he felt no pain. Laura, as usual, believed him. Bill was discharged from Payne Whitney on May 23rd with a statistical diagnosis of schizophrenia, the canatonic type. A note on his discharge paper says, The patient is likely to have further difficulty. Will probably have to be hospitalized again at some later date. They're not wrong. Bill wanted to spend some time in St. Louis. Bill's parents wanted him to spend some time in St. Louis after his discharge. Bill, for his part, was still acutely worried that they might find out that he was homosexual, so he dared not try to find a gay bar in the city. He continued his psychotherapy in St. Louis. His parents, who were supporting him, thought it would be good for him to help out while he was at home to set him up with work as a delivery man, driving for driving the truck at Cobblestone Gardens, their garden supply and gift shop. So, come work for your parents. Never That never goes wrong, working for your parents. Yeah, never. Bill found his situation almost intolerable. Quote, I was 26, working in the shop at the Cobblestone Gardens, which I hate to remember, when this Jew woman sent me around to the servant's servant's entrance. I drove away, clashing the gears and saying, Hitler was perfectly right. So you want it honest? You want? You want? You want? He was not used to being treated as the servant class. (laughs) You're fucking face god damn that dude he's <laughs> he's an asshole he is, when he's not getting his way he's racist he's even a bigot towards he oh. yeah he's not big on not he's not big on not getting his way bill's friend david Camerer had attended washington university in st louis and stayed on to become an english instructor there while working at U- washington university Camerer ran a, a cub scout play group Fucking Cub Scouts. <laughs> oh, it's not the Cub Scouts that's the problem. It's the fact that he's running the group. When he saw 13-year-old Lucian Carr, he was immediately reminded of the Apache he had become obsessed with when he and Bill dra- traveled to Paris in 1933. Cameron transferred his obsession to Lucian. David was more than twice Lucian's age. There was an early incident when Cameron's motive for running a Cub Scout pack was revealed. Once a week, he would fill his Model T with the den, six to eight grade school boys, and drive out to St. Charles County for the afternoon. On one occasion, after some <clears throat> romping around in a hayloft, Cameron burst a blood vessel in his penis and had to be taken to the hospital. <laughs> you all right? How, how, um, how do you burst a blood vessel in your penis? Well, it's like when you got to take a big shit. 
and you're and you're trying to push and you're holding your breath and you pop a blood vessel in your eye, I imagine it's somewhere along the same lines. So you have a boner and you're trying yeah. to... Yeah, after you listen to the story, you're probably not going to want to say the word boner anymore. <laughs> I probably won't want to have sex anymore. Uh, well, Lucian's father, Russell Carr, had walked out on his family when the boy was only two years old. Lucian had been very young when he died, so he never knew him. Lucian was a child looking for a father figure and was flattered by Cameron's attention. Cameron restrained himself for some time until Lucian was 14 when he and Cameron spent the summer together in Mexico. Cameron revealed his feelings towards Lucian. Lucian, shocked and confused, rejected him. Lucian was not gay. Lucian was never gay. However, there was some times where he would fool around with Bill or act like he was fooling around with Bill to make David jealous. Bill moved back to New York. On arrival, he immediately invited Jack Anderson to live with him. It was one of the few times in his life that Burroughs shared a bedroom with anyone. Not the last, though. But within a few days of being there, Bill found that his sexual attachment to Jack was over. September 41, Bill was hired as a copywriter in New York. His memorable, his memorable campaign was for Cascade. Not the dishwash soap. A high colonic consisting of a bag that a customer's filled with a special mixture. Bill wrote the copy. He explained that it had a nickel in the middle, so you'd stick the nickel up your ass and sit down on the bag, and it's something like a hot water bottle. Your weight forces all the liquid up. Unfortunately, some 300-pound woman sat on this bloody thing, and her guts burst out. That was, quote, that wasn't good. Little trouble with interstate commerce at that point. Are you okay? Yeah, just... <laughs> Wow, just Bill, weird shit going on. Bill's parents were still very concerned for his welfare and made sure he lived comfortably. They installed him with a luxurious apartment on West 11th Street in the West Village. It was small but had a compact kitchen, a bathroom, and two comfortable beds, everything Bill could want. He felt guilty about living off of them but also hated them for the control it gave over them. The guilt stayed with him for the rest of his life. Uh, at some point, I'll get to the fact that they gave him an allowance $150 a month, and then it went up to $200 a month, which was a few couple thousand dollars back then, until he was 50. Jesus. Yes, he got an allowance from his parents until he was 50. He felt guilty and then also hated it because it gave them control over it, but he did nothing to stop it. At one, at, at one point, probably fourth episode, you'll find out that um, they can no longer afford to give him money, and he convinces them to do it anyway. It doesn't stop until Moat dies and Laura gets put in a hospital for dementia. It, you know, and, and then they can't really do a whole lot. And then he gets a like a inheritance almost. But yeah, he lives off his parents for pretty much his entire life. Dude. December 7th, 1941, America was attacked at Pearl Harbor and joined the war. Bill, with his pilot's license he had obtained from an earlier attempt to at join the military, apl applied to join the new formed Glider Corps but was rejected because he did not have 20-20 vision. He had earlier applied as a volunteer ambulance driver to the American Field Service and when they were sending units to France before Dunkirk, but he was rejected. April 1942, Bill developed the case of jaundice and was advised to return to St. Louis. There, his physician at Washington University diagnosed, diagnosed acute infectious mononucleosis. Burroughs often ended relationships by running away. He would leave his flat, keep paying for it, and consider the case closed. When he stopped paying the rent, 
it became someone else's problem to evict the tenant. So he left Jack in that apartment building when he went back to St. Louis. He just left. <clears throat> he paid the rent for a little bit, and then once he stopped paying, it was the tenant's problem. You take care of Jack. In May, when he recovered from his mono in an attempt to escape his parents and break from Jack, he went to Jefferson Barracks and enrolled. They gave him a very curious, curse, a very cursory examination and certified him A1. 1A, I'm sorry. Quote, they took me. They did not think they would. He was housed at the barracks on the west bank of the Mississippi, just south of St. Louis. As soon as he realized what he had done, he looked for a way out. He, he wanted, oh, he wanted to be in the military. He tries for a long time before this to try to get into the military to fly planes. And they wouldn't take him. And he's so pissed off about it. And then he finally gets into the military and he realizes, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to do this shit. He had all these thoughts of flying planes and killing people. But when it got, came down to it, he just They he, shouldn't he got, have even let him in because shit. he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Babe, this was World War II. This was different. They still shouldn't have let him in. Yeah. I mean, because that schizophrenia is a serious it's, mental disease. He had volunteered as an officer and been rejected, so he didn't see why he should serve as a private. Quote, I like the idea of danger and killing and living in a very alert fashion, but I'm not self-destructive at all. If I find that things are not working, I will find a way out. On his first two-day leave, he explained his problem to his mother, who took him to see Dr. John C. Whitehorn. Whitehorn had a well-connected friend who sent for Bill's papers and consulted with the medical officer at Jefferson Barracks. Bill was admitted to the post hospital to await his honorable discharge. The paperwork took about four months to go through. In the meantime, Bill was excused from any military duties. He made friends with four or five people who were also awaiting their discharge papers. One of his new friends was Ray Masterson from Chicago. Masterson had been arrested when he was, a, when he was young and spent six months in jail, which may have been why he was being discharged. He, took, he told Bill lurid stories about Chicago criminal underworld, low-life, unsuccessful burglars, characters out of Jack Black's You Can't Win. Bill left the Army in the summer of 1942 with an honorable discharge. That still pisses me off. Entitling him to veterans benefits, even though he never did anything. That motherfucker. But no pension. So he could get health care, but they wouldn't give him any type of retirement. Well, yeah, he was only in there for four months. Yeah. By now, his parents expected nothing of him. All they required that he's conti he continue his psychoanalysis, which they paid for. This was when they fixed him a monthly allowance that he lived on until he was 50. Quote, if the regular army showed, him no showed me no respect, tossed me out for being abusive, self-mutilating homo, then I'd be a queer gangster. He moved to Chicago to join the lowlife that Ray Masterson had told him about. Burroughs arrived in Chicago in the autumn of 1942 and found a room in the Buena Apartments managed by Mrs. Hattie Murphy, a set known in Bur Burroughs' books simply as Mrs. Murphy's Rooming House. Bill met up with Ray Masterson. Masterson was Bill's only contact in Chicago, so Masterson introduced him to his friends. It was a poor neighborhood, and practically every kid on the block had some sort of criminal record. It was Burroughs' first contact with small-time criminals. Quote, they weren't interesting at all. They were stud logging in characters, low-life, unsuccessful burglars, ward healers. They'd have crap games on Sundays and cops would rush in. Down there's ass sticking up in the air, grabbing all the change that was left on this concrete sidewalk. That's a regular Sunday afternoon in Chicago. It wasn't, it wasn't the 
the life he thought it was going to be. That's yeah. kind of funny. He got a position as an exterminator with the Nueva Fumigating Company. Burroughs liked the job because he was working on his own time and he never knew what he would run into next. His favorite part was exterminating roaches. Bill knew just where they were. Quote, I just go in there to the new apartment and give them a spray and they'd all rush out and die instantly on the floor. You have to get a broom and sweep them up. It's a great sight. <laughs> he worked. What? He, he did like killing he shit. Did. He worked as an exter- except for deer. He couldn't kill a deer. This is totem animal. Yeah. He worked as an exterminator for about nine months, his longest ever regular employment. Burroughs was nearly 30, but after almost a year in Chicago, he still harbored fantasies about the gangsters and Jack Black's You Can't Win, the Tommy Guns and the shootouts of Chicago mobsters of the 20s. Burroughs planned to rob a Brinks armored truck. The idea was to place a large quantity of dynamite in the manhole and blow up the truck as it passed over. Bill and his collaborators would then rush out and grab the money. He got as far as visiting the city hall to inspect the sewer maps and found the route of the truck. He drew the map of the robbery site, but it went no further than that. Clearos, clearly, Burroughs wouldn't have lasted long as a criminal. There was another one that he had where he was going to rob the Turkish bath that he liked to go to um, because he knew what time they always took the money out, but he sat at the bar and got too drunk. And by the time they went to take to exchange the money, he had forgotten. He has no ambition. Uh, he has ambition. He has no... He has plenty of follow ambition. Through. He has no follow-through. That's what Everything goes on in his head. Things would change for him in Chicago when two of his old friends from St. Louis, David Kammerer and Lucian Carr, came to visit him at Miss Murphy's house. They went to Bill's room, pissed out of his window, and tore up the Gideon Bible that Miss Murphy, Miss Murphy thoughtfully placed in all of her lodger's rooms. She evicted him. This was serious because in addition to full employment, there was 99.5% occupancy in Chicago and rooms were extremely hard to get. Burroughs got her back by shooting her with a poison dart in place of dead roads. It's not in real life, in his book. I'm going to kill you in my book. Burroughs was now adrift. There was no direction to his life. He had no ambition, no drive. He was lonely, looking for a lover. He was bored. So when Lucian Carr decided to move to New York and Kammerer predictably followed him, he decided to follow Dave. Burroughs moved into Manhatt- to Manhattan in September 1943. It was during this period in New York that Burroughs would meet with whom he would always be associated and who would forever change his life. Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, Joan Vollmer, and Herbert Hunky, the so-called Beat Generation. And that's where we will pick it up. Williams S. Burroughs, part two. Was that Alan number two? Alan Ginsberg? Yeah. Yes, that's Alan number two. <laughs> Just trying to keep track of all that's the Alan Allens. There, there's going to be like three more Allens with first name Alan, then I think one or two with the last name Alan. <laughs> there's a lot of fucking Allens. A lot of fucking Allens. Uh, it didn't go near as long as I thought it was going to. Uh, I imagine we'd be at two hours by now, but we're not. Well, what do you think so far? Uh, so far, he has his ups and downs. Um, doesn't seem like a horrible person, but he doesn't say he's not a great person. Yeah, not a horrible person because at least he's, he's a, using his writing to hurt the people he doesn't like. Which he is, hasn't written anything yet. All those, all that stuff that I mentioned about his writings, they won't come for years. He 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 gets into writing at an older age. Yeah, but he wrote some short stories that he wrote. Yeah, he wrote some short stories, um, but 
after him and Kells do that little thing back in Harvard, he doesn't write anything again for a few years until um, him and Jack Kerouac get together and start writing. And that doesn't happen until after another major event takes place, which won't take place until about middle of the next episode. Yeah. So, and that and that's only a uh, like a one-off thing. He doesn't write again after that until after another huge, probably the biggest milestone in his life that happens. It might also happen next episode. I can't remember. Was um, he medicated after he was diagnosed with schizophrenia? No. Okay, so... He self-medicates for his entire life. But it's not but it's not the medication he should be on. Well, I know he was starting to dabble in some drugs and stuff. Oh, well, next episode we will get big into the drugs that he's using. They... You know, he did he did stuff here and there. Nothing really major up until now. He smoked cigarettes, drank. Um, there wasn't anything in there really about him smoking any weed or anything like that. The beat generation, his friendship with, with Alan and Jack. Uh, he doesn't mean Joan until later, but when he meets her, that's huge. Um, Herbert, he's probably the biggest influence as far as his drug taking goes as far as like junk morphine goes mm-hmm. that's when that all starts and all that will come on the next episode and it, it'll come fairly quickly you gotta meet a bunch of crazy characters in the next episode i love crazy characters. there's a guy named bozo and <laughs> uh the guy, a guy they call the sailor yeah it's gonna wow. get it's gonna get the uh, you're either gonna be you're either gonna listen to this and go, ah, it's not that big a deal, or you're gonna be sitting there with your jaw on your floor on the floor. Like this, I was for a uh, bit yeah, of this episode. Yeah, yeah. You were pretty quiet this episode, but every time I looked up, you were kinda like, What the fuck am I hearing? Yeah, I I was speechless because I did I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know what to say. It was just what the fuck is wrong with this dude? Like his mom babied him and so he felt like he could do whatever he wanted, but he had a mental illness, and that just fucked him up even more. His, and he didn't get medicine for it. His parents will bail him out the rest of his life. His parents and his brother will bail him out the rest of his life. And it's it's going to come full circle because it's something he's going to end up having to do. But the thing also. is, he knows he has this mental disorder, and he's... Well, and again... He believes that there's this ugly spirit, and this ugly spirit is to blame for all of it. Yeah, but then there's times where he's completely normal and lucid, and he knows he he was lucid enough to know that he needed to go get help. Yeah, and there was no mention of the evil spirit. Oh no, no, just just because I didn't put it in there, the the ugly spirit is mentioned throughout the book. I mean, pretty much any time something bad happens, he tries to put it on the ugly spirit. All the way up until the very early 90s, about 92, I think, when he finally has a backyard, uh, a shaman come to his house in his backyard in a makeshift tent and draw it out of him in a spiritual um, ceremony. Until the 90s, everything that happens to him in his life he pretty much points directly to 
well, it's the ugly spirit. Somebody put a curse on me. Oh, my God. And it, it all goes back to his mother's obsession with witchcraft and the occult and her kind of ingraining it into him, which is kind of weird since she grew up in a religious household. Um, I don't know. But it it's going to get – it's weird now. It's going to keep getting kind of weird. Uh, I believe it's episode – that might be episode five. I don't know. Episode three, four, or five, one of those, where he gets into Scientology. Um, he 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 gets out of it, but he does get into Scientology pretty big for a little bit. I don't cover too much of it because you can only tell the story of him taking clearing courses and, and running e-meters so many times before everybody was fall asleep. That's probably why his parents ran out of money. Oh, the clearing courses? The Scientology? Scientology. Well, he, by then, he has enough money to pay for that shit himself. He pretty much just uses his inherit, his, his allowance on getting nicer places to live and eating out. That's something I'm not, I don't cover that in, in this because there's just so much. I had to pick what I wanted to cover. So the fact that I don't cover his, his food preferences, he is a huge foodie. Anywhere he goes. If he's living in some rotten hole-in-the-wall place, which he does a lot, he's perfectly happy as long as there's a good restaurant nearby. He could be living in the most posh, beautiful, elegant, luxurious place, apartment or house or mansion in the world. If he doesn't have a place to get good food, he fucking hates it. He's miserable. He's huge and he's a huge foodie. He's a spoiled fucking brat. He is a spoiled fucking brat. And he, he's going to get worse as it goes on. He's going he's gonna to fall in love with people and they're not going to repay his love. And it, he's going to be obsessed. And then once they do repay his love, he's not going to want anything to do with them. Um, there's, there's a handful of relationships like that. He becomes obsessed with people and things. Once he, once he learns a new or finds out a new way to do something, like when it comes to painting or when it comes to his photography, once he learns something, or when it comes to his writing, when we finally get to the cut-ups, um, he was of the pioneer in the in cut-up literature. Once he gets to that, he becomes obsessed with it. He has a very obsessive personality. He, he just he completely en- engulfs himself in whatever it is, this new thing. And that can be a thing, or it can be a person. He does it with uh, boyfriends. He does it with projects. He ends up doing it with cats later on in his life. He completely, I mean, cats pretty much run his world near the end of his life, which, I mean, if you're going to dedicate the last, you know, 10, 15 years of your life to anything, I mean, better cats than drugs, even though he's still technically on drugs then. Well, I bet um, he was having the cats do drugs too. No, he took care of those cats. He loved those cats. Loved the cats. Okay. Okay. Even though he constantly was bringing poisonous, venomous snakes into the house. But as far as I know, none of the cats were killed by them. He loved the cats. He took care of them. This, one, you're going to think that it can't get any weirder, and then we're going to get to the last episode, and the snakes are going to get brought up, and you're going to be like, what the fuck? (laughs) I thought he was calming down. Nope. He doesn't calm down until the day he dies, he doesn't calm down. He's, he's, go, go, go. How, how, how much weirder can I make this shit? <laughs> uh, I'm sure you can make it much more weird. Oh, I, there's plenty of people I, I leave. When 
when I'm telling you the somebody's life and I leave out a story about a man being killed by a lion in a Mexican bar, you know that the rest of the story is pretty fucking weird. And that might be a, tor- a story that we record and we do because um, I'm finally I'm working on the Patreon. I'm getting it. I'm going to hope, hopefully get it up there. And that might be a story we do a special uh, a side story. Or, well, not side. Somebody else uses that. But a uh, an extra story um, that you that you'd be able to get off like Patreon or something. So we're going to look into to doing all that. I already have the account set up. I just have to get everything figured out. So shit takes time. Shit takes time. Well. Been doing this for a while. It's a nice, big, thick, meaty episode. Uh, let's go ahead and throw our socials out there. Um, we are at Audio Parfait on Twitter and Instagram mm-hmm. and open a F-N book at Twitter and Instagram. It's O-P-E-N-A-F-I-N-G-B-O-O-K. Yeah. And I am at E-C-J-B-A-T on Twitter and Instagram. I am Young, E-T-A-M. That's Y-O-U-N-G, E-T-A-M. Twitter and Instagram. You can go to our website, www.audioparfait.com. Um, we had just moved from Anchor to Transistor. So we're still working on getting everything settled down there. And once we get all that all worked out, we'll be putting our website from that out. You can still listen to us everywhere that you normally listen to uh, podcasts. Please rate and review us. Let your friends know. We we're trying to get this out there. Email us, info at audioparfait.com. Let us know what you think. Um, we're always taking suggestions, people that you want us to cover, books you want us to cover. Just tell us we're doing a good job. Tell us we're doing a shitty job. We're fine. Just tell us whatever you need to tell us. Um, but I think for that week, this, this week, uh, that's all. We got four more weeks of this to go and I think we'll be all be exhausted by then. Probably. All right. Well, I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. Uh, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And between now and the next time I get to talk to you, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. See you guys. Bye guys.